Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Today's talk, I'm calling this Identity Crisis. Now, we're looking at the issue of identity. As, as Freddie said there, my book is on human identity. This is who, who are we? How should we live in this world? What does it mean to be human? And I would say one of my observations is that there does seem to be a bit of a global identity crisis going on in our world today. I'll expand on what I mean by that as we go through. But let's turn our hearts to Scripture before we get into this. Let's turn to Psalm 8 together, please, and we'll just read this Scripture. This is a Psalm of David, and Psalm 8 reads like this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! Who have displayed your splendour above the heavens, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Wonderful psalm there of David. And it's really those verses, that verse 3 and 4 that I want to just focus your attention in on. I sort of imagine David sitting under the stars, the shepherd that he was, looking at the night sky and really just having one of those sort of philosophical existential moments where he says, what is man? that you think about him. You have made him a little lower than yourself, but yet he is the the central piece of your creation. He's the reason you came to die. These are the sorts of things we're going to be discussing and looking at today. But before we do that, let me just give you a bit of background about why I wanted to write this book and look at this topic so much. So the book really began by, uh, actually through youth ministry, so do, doing youth ministry, speaking with, with young people, kind of teenage age I'm talking here, and hearing their concerns, their struggles, their problems, and noticing that many of them are obviously focused on the issue of identity. Now that's, that's a big issue obviously for teenagers, uh, always has been, but I think today it's highlighted more probably by the, uh, the questions. So like, you know, meaning, value, purpose, All of these things are related to the issue of identity. And these were issues that I saw coming up a lot during these questions. And one of the things I did notice, though, that there was a need for a proper biblical response to these issues. The world really does not have much to offer on these things. And quite frankly, it's the world that seems to be making the problem worse and worse. Nothing but a confusing mass of conflicting opinions, of which any one was apparently acceptable, except the one that said the others weren't acceptable. You see what I mean? It was like that sort of trick that we see going on in the world a lot, to get, a lot today. So my takeaway from this was, quite simply, that confusion reigns. And we know God is not the God of confusion. 1 Corinthians 14, we know that verse. So let me give you an example of how this plays out. This is not just something that was confined to the, the, you know, a youth ministry on a on the Sunday morning. This, this plays out in the world in many different ways. Let me give you a tragic example. Some of you, were, you probably, probably, probably won't know. There was a very famous DJ called DJ Avicii. 
his real name was Tim Bergling. He was a house DJ, um, Swedish, Swedish gentleman, but he was a Grammy-nominated artist. Uh, he toured the world, and a lot of, he was kind of like the man behind a lot of the famous songs you'll know. You know, a lot of people, though, pop stars, they don't write their own music. Um, you have people doing that. He was one of those people. Uh, yeah, very good. Lived a clean life, didn't get involved in the drug scene, on the music circuit. Um, just last year, he was 28 years old. After one of his concerts, he uh, was in his hotel room. He broke a bottle, he picked up a piece of glass, and he slashed his own wrists, and he died there in his hotel room. 28-year-old young man at the top of his game and his career. And in a statement put out by his family, his family said this. They said, Our beloved Tim was a seeker a fragile, artistic soul searching for answers to the existential questions. He really struggled with thoughts about meaning, life and happiness. He could not go on any longer. He just wanted to find peace. Meaning, life, purpose, happiness, peace. You see, these are the cries of a generation that are being told to search for these answers in all the wrong places. In fact, they're being told to search for them everywhere except the one place where they should be looking. The Bible has always had the answers to these questions. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal so destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Psalm 16 verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy in your right hand. There are pleasures evermore. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have Peace with God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 26, verse 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. And listen to that. That's how you get peace. When the thoughts of your mind are consumed with the things of God. Amen. Not the stuff that people are being told to fill their minds with. And this is the problem. This tragic example of this young man is just one example. I could give you many examples. Now, all of these things, meaning life, happiness, purpose, they are all in one way or another connected to the issue of identity. And like we said, the confusion comes from the enemy. Therefore, there is really only one solution to this, and this is to point people back to the true manifesto that we have for understanding ourselves, and that is the Word of God. It is the manifesto given to us by our Creator, and He is the one who created us. He is the one who knows us, and this is where we need to point people. And this is an opportunity for the church to rise up and be that witness, that salt, that light in this world. However, this is not just teenagers or young people. Don't think this, this applies to all generations. This is another thing I noticed whilst researching the book. Adults, too, go through identity crisis. There may be different reasons that make them have these feelings. Maybe they haven't achieved what they wanted to achieve. They're not happy in their jobs. The routine of life builds and the pressures that we get just coming into us from living in a fallen world. Anything and everything can cause these sorts of crises in our lives. And yet, not only young people, adults, I noticed that, like I said, the whole globe seems to be spinning out of control at this ever-increasing rate. Now, obviously, we know the Lord is ultimately in control of these things. But as we look around, we can see that, like I said, confusion is reigning. Global identity crisis, what do I mean by that? Well, let's just give me a few examples. We saw marriage, didn't we, redefined in the last few years one of the most primary and foundational sociological institutions and biblical and spiritual institutions that God gave as common grace to this world. We've seen the deconstruction of gender norms. This is a, a, a new one. Male-female binary identity is now seen as a bigoted view to hold. 
this is a problem. Because one thing you'll notice is that this was given to us in the first few chapters of the Bible. Now, in the first few chapters of the Bible, you will find the foundations of most doctrines that we read throughout the rest of the Bible. And that's why the book of Genesis is so often attacked so vehemently. Because if you can take away the foundation, then the rest of it sort of floats off into nothing. I can guarantee you the Christians who affirm various different lifestyles or reject these sorts of options don't take Genesis seriously. That just seems to be one thing that I've noticed. Always two go together. So be very serious about that. We've seen the language... You know, we now have, I read an article the other day that read 26 men this year have been pregnant and given birth. Now, is that confusing? Now, we all understand the sort of social engineering that's going on with these statements, but I'm thinking about young people who maybe don't understand that, who are just exposed to this sort of thing, and it goes into their mind. These statements don't make sense, but yet we're at a time in our culture where they are actually the norm. Social media accounts allow people to choose from 50 different of available gender options. Many of you may have followed the abortion debates that have been going on in various legislation going through in American states, abortion up till birth and all of these things. Don't be confused. That's not a culture war. That's not an American issue. That is an issue that is related to the book of Genesis again. Okay? And that is the real issue that's going on with these issues. It's related to identity. What does it mean to be human? When do we start being human? These things are all connected. We have right... Liberals, conservatives. People are scrambling around searching for some sort of identity to hang their hat on. And they are searching everywhere except the one place they should be looking, which is to the creator. Now, one other thing that became apparent, and I'm sure many of you will understand this, is that things are becoming very polarised between the different viewpoints that we have in the world today. Conversation is becoming more vicious. And I was socially... A lot of hatred for those that disagree with different viewpoints, whether it be politically or socially or whatever it may be. Remember what Jesus said, a sign of the last days will be people's love will grow cold. Okay, so this is what we need to understand. And unfortunately, I see Christians falling into the trap of getting involved on this, particularly if they're engaged online. And another reason for the book was we are called to a higher standard. Okay, our speech and our conduct must be set apart from the world. It doesn't mean we don't engage the world. It doesn't mean we don't speak boldly for truth. But it means we must be very careful in not to get pulled down into the mud and start wrestling in the mud in the same way. Our speech and our conduct must be set apart. And finally, one thing I noticed is that there is no hope coming from the world. It's very much a worldview of doom. You may have seen some of the recent sort of ex- climate extinction rebellion protests in the streets of London. You know, 12-year-old girls weeping in front of the cameras because they're, they're so scared. That it's a very much a sort of doom mentality that we have now, and they are offering no hope and no solutions. We as Christians are the answer to this, quite frankly. 1 Timothy 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Jesus is the hope that we have to offer this world. And we need to raise our voices for that. We need to exalt the gospel and Jesus in our explanation of these issues. So that was really the motivation that went into writing this book. And we cover a lot of those issues in there. So let's turn to the word of God now and just have a little look at some of the elements of what humanity is according to the Bible. The first thing that sets mankind apart is that obviously we are said to be created But not only that, we are said to be created in the image of God. 
Now, this is something that is so fundamental, we have to understand this for both, for both the believer and the non-believer. Because whether someone's a Christian or not a Christian, they're still created in the image of God. And that means they have inherent worth and dignity and value. And there's a certain way that we must conduct ourselves when we do these things. Turn with me to the first chapter of the Word of God, book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Let's read these together. Then God said, Let us bird man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Very first chapter of the Bible. You think that's important? That is absolutely important. The Bible clearly teaches humans are created in the image of God. Nothing else else in the whole created narrative is given this honour. It is reserved for mankind alone. It's our privilege bestowed on us by a loving creator. And this implies that we are like God in some fundamental and profound ways. Now, don't read too much in, listen to what I'm saying. The interesting thing about this, and what I mean by that, is that an image cannot exist by itself. You understand that? It only finds its ultimate explanation in the thing that it is imaging, the original. And when we look at the issue of what it means to be human, this is fundamental. It it impacts this question in very profound ways because it means in order to understand what we are as humans, it means we have to understand God and what he is because he is the one we are imaging and he is the original. Now, one major premise of the book and of theology in general is that to understand this, we need to understand God. And theologically, the flow comes from this first chapter. We were made in the image of God. And it finds ultimately its fullest expression in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3, it says he's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Now, you know, no, no one displayed or, or, or the Father better than Jesus Christ. But... Humanity is still said to be in the image of God. So the most important question that we have to do is verses 13 to 18. The famous, who do you say that I am? If you're a Christian, you've undoubtedly heard sermons on this, this text before. Let's, let's pick it up at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Okay, foundational verse, particularly for New Testament ecclesiology, for the understanding of the church in the New Testament. Now, the immediate problem with this, recent survey in our culture, 46% of young people don't actually believe that Jesus existed as a real person. 46%. Yeah, that's, over, that's almost half. Okay, so we're asking this most important question, who do you say that I am? And they don't even believe that he was a real person. You see the challenge that we're up against. We see where we need to be focusing our direction and some of the things that we need to be putting our effort into. Now, we can fight symptoms that we see in the culture, like these culture wars is the real problem, which, like I always say, is coming back to the foundational issue, has God really said? It's the authority of the word of God. And that is how we defend Christ in this culture, because Christ is the word of God incarnate. 
okay? These things are all connected. But notice, Jesus says first to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, John, Elijah, the prophet, Jeremiah, some, you know, some of these things. And I find it interesting the way Jesus does this sort of double questioning. First he asks them, who do people say that I am? And then he says, who do I say that I am? But this, we have this today. The world has many things to say about Jesus Christ. We all know this. We've heard many different <laughs> options of who Jesus is, what he did. Was he a good teacher? Was he just a prophet? Is he the prophet Isa? Is he all of these different things that people have? We see it in the world today. Let me read you just a couple of examples. Uh, some of you may know this quote. Uh, I'll read it. It says, From my point of view, I would ban religion completely. Even though there are some wonderful things about it, I love the idea of the teachings of Jesus and the beautiful stories about it, which I loved in Sunday school, and I all collected these little stickers and I put them in my book. But the reality is, is that organised religion doesn't seem to work. It turns people into hateful lemmings and it's not really compassionate. Anyone know who, who said that? A recent movie just come out about him called Rocket Man. Anyone know? Elton John. That was Elton John. That was with the, he said that to the Observer in 2006. How about this one? Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. Anyone know that? In the same quote, he goes on to say that they are, he is now more popular than Jesus. John Lennon, there you go, yeah, that's a good one. One of the Beatles there, John Lennon, very famous quote. I could give you, again, I could give you uh, many quotes to this effect. People have their own ideas of Jesus, but as I can tell you, as the culture always says, they're wrong. Just as Jesus was asking the disciples here, what are people saying? Well, some are saying you're just this prophet, some are saying you're that prophet. And then Jesus turns, he says, no, I don't want to know what the culture says. He says, what do you say? that I am. And he, he makes this individual to the disciples who are the ones that are going to be his world changers after this. You see, it's not an overstatement to say that this is the most important question Jesus ever asked. And it's not an overstatement for us to say today, it's probably the most important question we will ever answer. Because every one of us has to engage with that question at some point in our lives. In fact, it's part of our mission to get people to engage with that question, whether they want to or not. And then we have Peter's famous answer, don't we? Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now notice this, the foundation of the church, which many theologians will tell you, this is, this is the moment. The foundation of the church was built upon the recognition of the true identity of Jesus Christ. The foundation of the church, the true identity of Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, I believe in our day and age, this is very important to understand. We live in an age where people like to make their own truth. They live in a sort of that's right. And unfortunately, this has crept into the church. Jesus was wrong on this bit. That's just a cultural part, needs to be outdated. We'll, we'll amend his teaching here to fit with our culture here. We see this going on all the time. And it, quite frankly, it gets a little boring the more and more we see it. But it's an issue going on here. The true foundation of the church was built upon the true understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And he is the one who revealed himself to us in the word of God. And therefore, when we think that we can discard parts of the word of God, even if they are uncomfortable, it means that we are actually representing a Jesus that is not the one that we find on the pages of scripture. And then we have people end up saying like, oh, well, he was a good person. He was a good teacher. He did this really good. I mean, no, he wasn't God. That's nonsense. And you see how it goes on and on. You see how all these things are all connected. Jesus is fully revealed in the scripture. Hebrews 10 verse 7 
Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Jesus testifies to who he is in the word of God. He is the grand subject of the Bible. And like I said, we know it from the Gospel of John because he is the word incarnate. Now, the book goes through a number of things about if you reject that, obviously, you find your identity somewhere else. What does the world offer people? There are a number of different things. I'll give you a very brief overview now. Some people, a lot of people, actually use other people's opinions to form their identity. And social media has probably played into this in some very negative ways. People are very, very impacted by what other people think of them. And they're, and they're striving to have that acceptance, which is an understandable uh, you know, quality that we have in humanity. Um, but they don't find it, or they alter themselves to fit what they believe is going to get them accepted. And just, again, just a reminder, this is one thing that the church has to offer. One thing that we need to understand, the community of the global body of Christ is something that nothing else can compare to. And we need to make sure we represent that. Even in the different, you know, we have many different cultural expressions amongst our churches, and that is good. But yet we still have unity around the person of Jesus Christ. Some people find identity according to their job, their profession, their community, or their orientation. All of these things are being used to try and form identity. And they're not unimportant, I'm not saying that. But they cannot give you a foundation or an objective identity. Now, one of the most uh, prevalent views is actually in the scientific realm, what we would call uh, naturalism or, or biological evolution. Again, we go into this in a lot of detail in the book. I, I won't do this now. But very simply, the belief in evolution obviously directly relates to humanity. Uh, the Smithsonian Museum, if you go on their Human Origins website, they say this, part of what it means to be human is how we became human. And I would agree with that statement. That's a very true. And again, it's not just, a, it's not just part of the, uh, the American culture wars with creation and evolution. It's way bigger than that. If you, if you study history, you'll see that these views have had a huge impact on how people have treated each other. And, and uh, you know, they've had just massive repercussions throughout the world. The book details that in a lot of detail. Let me just sum it up by giving you one quote from a leading evolutionist. His name was Bill Provine. Uh, he died just two years ago, I believe, but he was one of the leaders. Don't misunderstand me. This is what it's about. He says, let me summarise my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. There are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. When I die, I'm absolutely certain I'm going to be dead. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning to life, and no free will for humans either world-leading evolutionary biologist. That every person who goes through a university course will be studying his books. That is the worldview that is attached to these things. There's no such thing as a neutral classroom when you're looking at these issues. And we know this because, obviously, we're Christians. What we represent is a worldview that takes everything into that reality. We mustn't just think of it as something we do on Sundays, Wednesday nights, maybe a prayer meeting, and if we're lucky, we'll tell a few people at work. Okay, Christianity is a worldview that impacts every area. And we don't want to give over these areas to people who are going to be pushing this worldview. Like I say, neutrality is really a myth. So that's a little bit of what the world offers. Now let me switch gears as we sort of come to the end of this. The back half of the book then changes and it focuses in on identity in Christ. Because obviously we can't just critique something and then not have something to put in its place. We have to be able to offer something better to these people who are searching. And I believe we have something better, and it is obviously Jesus Christ. And 
you notice that little phrase throughout the Bible, particularly Paul's epistles, where he keeps saying, in him, in him, in him, particularly Ephesians 1. We call this positional truth. This is our identity in Christ Jesus, because that moment we become a Christian, everything changes. Let me read to you. There were a number of things. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Again, very famous and much-loved verse. So we have to understand some things about humanity. We're created in the image of God. We're created male and female. That means gender is sacred. It's something created by God. That means men and women are equal in value, but we are not identical. And that is a good thing. There is a complementary design and beauty built into the creation narrative that actually is a picture of God's love for the church, we learn from Ephesians. And that's why these things are so important. Because if we think we can play with that design, we are actually ruining the picture that Christ has given us of his love for the church, which is what Paul ultimately does. There is a reason why the entire Bible in Jewish tradition was considered a marriage contract. That's what they consider, that's what they consider the Bible. And there is a reason why... In the end of the Bible, we see a marriage taking place. Because all of these things are linked theologically, and we need to understand that as the church. However, having said that, we are created in the image of God, but there is a problem, and we need to stare this straight in the face. We are also fallen. Okay? When sin entered the world, again in Genesis chapter 3, when we read that narrative that when God cursed the creation, when Adam and Eve sinned, the image of God was, was corrupted in us and the world was cursed and things are not now as they should be. I don't need to tell you all about that. We feel the effects of this every day. We turn on the news, we can see the effects of this every single day. Now, sin is a very unpopular term today, but we need to understand what it means. I don't mind if we want to describe it in different ways to, a, to an unchurched culture, that's fine. It's missing the mark, isn't it? And obviously the mark being the perfect will of God, anything the glory of God. So we need to understand that that's the problem. And if you don't explain the problem properly, the solution loses its force. You see, if you haven't, under, if you haven't explained the fall properly to people, what it means to be separated from God, why we have death and suffering and pain and tears and all this brokenness in the world, when you offer them Jesus, if they haven't understood this bad part, the good part to them is only going to be seen as some sort of a, as emotional, maybe psych, psychology that's just a good feeling. You can get a good feeling from Jesus. It might work for you. It might not. Hey, give it a go. That's not the gospel. Okay? And that will actually just fools people into coming into the church, getting put on a rotor, serving, and then falling away like we see so many times in popular culture. We have to be very clear on the theological basis we have as Christians. So we are created in the image of God, but we are fallen. But then when we become Christians, when we accept Christ into our life, a number of wonderful things happen to us. I'll just give you a few of them now. The book contains many more. We are redeemed and we are forgiven. They are the two main things, aren't they? We are redeemed and we are forgiven. The message of Christianity is unique and it is extraordinary. You see, not only does God forgive us, Forgiveness is very important in this life. He also transforms us by the power of his spirit into that new creation and one day we will see him like he is. We are washed and made clean by the work of Christ. You see, to live with Christ is truly what it means to be human. That is the very reason we were created for and therefore that is the ultimate meaning of life. And this should be our greatest pursuit in our own life but also in the life of trying to get others to accept this truth too. 
Many of you will know Billy Graham in this room. He died in uh, February 2018. Did anyone see or read his will? They released his will publicly. It was an amazing document. Well, obviously, 99% of it was just legal jargon. But he had an introduction. And that you can still go online and read this, I believe. Let me separate. This is just from the introduction to his estate. He says, First, I commit myself wholly into the hands of my Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing by God's word that through his shed blood my sins have been atoned for and taken away, and that through his merits I shall be presented faultless in the presence of his glory. Since I was a teenager, I have found joy and peace in believing God rather than trusting the changing opinions of men. It has been my supreme joy to labour to his service. I acknowledge I have often disappointed him, but he has never disappointed me. I ask my children, my grandchildren, to maintain and defend at all hazards, at any personal cost of sacrifice, the blessed doctrine of complete atonement for sin through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ once offered, and through that alone. I urge all of you to walk with the Lord in a life of separation from the world, to keep eternal values in view. I urge all who shall read this document to read and study the scriptures daily, and to trust only in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. What about that as a will? That's a legacy that he left for his grandchildren. And I picture kind of the lawyer sitting there reading this to the family. Like, <laughs> well, but that is it. That's what it's about. That's what our lives are. That is the legacy we want to leave. That is the message that we have. We need to be redeemed. We need others to be redeemed. And because for, to fulfill that, obviously, we need a redeemer, a saviour. Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. There is a redeemer, Jesus, God's own son, precious lamb of God, Messiah. You know that song. This is the truth for human identity. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are blood-bought and forgiven individual. And you have been paid for with the highest currency in the entire cosmos, the blood of God's own dear son. There is nothing that compares to that. And that is the hope that we have to give to this world. Think of that DJ that I read, read about. If he had known that hope, yes. would he be searching for hope? On, like, would that have happened? We don't know. Two more things. We are loved and we are adopted. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, it says, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons to Jesus Christ himself. These are two more wonderful elements of what it means to be in Christ Jesus, to find our identity in him. In a culture that seems to lack love, in a culture where often fatherhood is a missing element and the, so, the social sciences, you know, the statistics are pretty clear on the lack of fatherhood in homes and the, what that, the effect that that has. And again, this is an issue that goes right back to Genesis 1 when God instituted the family unit. This is why it's so powerful. But the, the, the doctrine of adoption, you know, that we are adopted as sons of God, you see this in Ephesians, you see it also in the book of Romans, this is a very powerful truth that we have to tell to a fatherless and a broken generation. It's one of the most cherished and comforting truths in the Christian faith. The specific teaching that when you become a Christian, you are adopted into an intimate and loving family. Father is an utterly unique, but as children. Adoption is a very important truth. 1 John 3 verse 1, see what kind of love the father has given us that we should be called children of God. So we are. What kind of love is it that he, the creator of the universe, would adopt us so that we can be called his children? There's not a message like that in the world, in social philosophy, in atheist philosophy, in other religions. It's utterly unique to the Christian faith. And finally, 
the final thing that I want to look at today relating to our identity in Christ is that we are called. We are called. This speaks directly to the issue of meaning and purpose in our life. You see, everyone needs a sense of purpose for their life. We just do to be able to function. You see people who are not Christians scrambling around um, looking for meaning and purpose and doing many great things and fulfilling this in other ways, but ultimately they can only go so far. Because like I said, to ultimately fulfill your purpose in life, you have to understand that you were created for a reason, and that is to be in relationship with your God, but not just to be in relationship, to then be in relationship and fulfill the works that he has ordained for you. And that is the point. Material things will never lead to ultimate fulfillment in this life. All they will do is sort of move you on a little bit, fill the time maybe. There is an inner cry for purpose that transcends these physical things. And many people, Christian or no Christian, acknowledge that. But for the Christian, this desire finds its satisfaction in God. And for everyone, it will ultimately find its satisfaction in God. That is the importance of the message that we have to give to this world. We are then translated from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of heaven. We hear that given a new family, we're given a new kingdom. Okay. All of these things are part of the Christian message. And that's why when we reduce the gospel just down to this one single soteriological element, you know, be saved, don't get me wrong, I never demean that. But the gospel is so much more than that. Okay. What we have, this message is so much more than that. And we need to make sure we explain that to people because um, we're up against a lot of different voices in this culture. You know, we sometimes maybe only get one or two hours a week with, with certain people, with young people in our church. And they, you know, there's another 40 hours in the week that they're getting voices from somewhere else. So we need to speak loudly and clearly. The Christian's calling is one that looks and builds into an eternal kingdom. And such a calling means that your life can never be considered empty, meaningless. No matter what activity you're engaged in, whether you're working all in the millions of different jobs that you could do, When you are a Christian, that vocation changes its purpose slightly. Yes, you're doing it to provide for your family and earn money, but you're also there as a citizen and an ambassador for Christ's kingdom. That means every single thing you do is filled, infused with meaning. And that is something that we have to offer. The true secret to finding your calling is to realise that it comes from God. And ultimately, I would say that that is the true meaning of life. Let me end by quoting to you just two verses of a poem from C.T. Studd, one of my favourite missionaries. He says, Two little lines I have heard one day, travelling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, and now let me say thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, It was worth it all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, Lord. I thank you so much for the truth of your word, for the way it reveals your son to us, Lord. I pray now that our hearts will be stirred to follow you with just more passion than we would ever have, Lord. We pray your spirit that you would give us that, Lord. We thank you for it, Father. I pray a blessing upon this, uh, all these people here who have heard these truths, that you would cause them to bear fruit and grow in their lives, Lord God. Bless this church and this service and our fellowship time now. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.